Welcome to Opposable Thumbs, a podcast where Taylor and Rob tackle a new creative challenge every two weeks and talk about our accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. My name is Rob Ray. I use he, his gender pronouns. I'm a designer by day and an artist at night. I make music and objects using the name Shimmering Trash Pile. And I'm Taylor Hokinson. I'm an artist, educator, DIY enthusiast, CAD cam evangelist, noted tall person, Midwestern Viking, uh, full-time parent, and I'm a he, his kind of guy. And I'm Emily Velasco. She, her pronouns. I am by day a science writer. So my job is taking scientific research and turning it into something the public can understand. In my free time, I do a lot of, I, I hesitate to call it art because I always feel weird calling myself an artist, but other people think it's art. So I'll just say I do a lot of art. Indeed. I kind of want to jump in right on that because I feel like it's been many years since the profession of the artist was sort of respected in a general sense, at least in the United States. Do do we agree with that? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked to a lot of people who are, I think, in the same space. You are, Emily, and I was really enjoying going through your Instagram um, because, you know, there's a lot of just like personal photography you have in there. And then also here's this weird thing I made. And then you had some examples of things that didn't work out and some examples of finished pieces and all that. And and you really seem to be in dialogue with your audience in that space. I really enjoyed how your practice was living there in a way that, you know, a more traditional artist would feel the need to be in a museum or something like that. Do you feel like Instagram is kind of where your creative practice lives or is that just one of the many places? It's one of the many places. And when I started this, so in a previous career, I did social media as a job. And so when I was doing it for my job, I almost completely disconnected from it personally, because when you do social media nine to five, Monday through Friday, you're just completely sick of it by the time you get home. But after I I left that job, I set up social media for myself and I set up Instagram as the place for my art. And I set up Twitter as the place for me to like just post dumb stuff. And over time, it's it's kind of flipped a little bit. You know, I still post my projects on Instagram. And I, I try to I try to give Instagram as much attention as I give my Twitter. But in the beginning, definitely, like I lived on Instagram. And these days I live on Twitter, like I am in Twitter all day. And it's, it's kind of an unhealthy obsession almost. But I, I really do live there. And, you know, it was, like I say, unhealthy in like a tongue-in-cheek way, there's a bigger discussion to be had about living online. But especially with COVID now and everyone staying at home, it's kind of a blessing because if I didn't have my Twitter friends, and I've really built some like really great friendships on Twitter and like some really great interpersonal relationships with people. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't really have anything other than seeing my parents like once a week. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on on Twitter and I, I post a lot more updates on there than I do on Instagram. And like you said, there's a dialogue that happens there, which is really fun because sometimes I'll post something like, what if an electronic banana, you know? (laughs) What if a dildo, but with bones? Then everyone starts like chiming in and sometimes they have things that like really click in my mind and like set me off on another path to work on something. But there's a very fun like back and forth that gets going on there where people will be like, oh God, Emily, no, not this. And then like them freaking out is like, all right, I definitely have to do this. That was kind of how the the bone dildo project came about. It was just a stupid idea I had one day. It was actually in the spring. I think I had COVID and I was very sick and I was lying on the couch and I wasn't hallucinating, but I was just kind of in a weird state of mind feeling very ill. And 
this idea came to me and I tweeted it and people were like, oh God. And they freaked out so bad about it. And not, not everyone did. Like there's some people that were really into it. But when some people freaked out badly about it, like they strongly reacted, I was like, I have to do this. It took a few months, but I got it actually made. And it's cool. Like people can really like, I don't want to say motivate exactly, but they, they definitely provide some sort of impetus to the creative process when you interact with them. Reb, I, I feel like I can just go and go, but I need to make some space for you. <laughs> sure. So you go. I really am amazed by so many people who I just follow and like get a peek into who they are and like what they make. My mouth is always just like wide open, like, oh my God, look at that thing, you know? And some of those people we've talked about on the podcast, like Mohit Boyd's work is freaking amazing. It's how I find out about what the world is doing, which is weird to say, but but uh, but cool. Yeah, Mohib is great. I don't remember when I first came across Mohib's work, but he directly inspired at least a couple of projects of mine. I got into the 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 freeform circuit sculpture stuff, and I I didn't quite go the same direction as him. He's so precise and like detail oriented. Oh yeah, it's so good. I cannot achieve that kind of organization and precision in the way I work. So my stuff has been a lot more chaotic. Just seeing him work really got the gears turning in my head. Using the same brass wire into the center of it, I built a little cathode ray tube screen from a from a camcorder. So it was like a one inch square screen and a tiny little camera. So you pick the thing up and all the circuitry is suspended inside of this cube. And you pick it up and you look at yourself because the camera's looking at you and it's displaying what it's looking at on this tiny little screen. So you have to pick it up and look into it because it's a little screen, so you have to get it close, and you're seeing your own face looking back at you. And I really, really liked that project, and that was the first like circuit sculpture project I did, and that was directly inspired by his work. And he just posted something today, and it was, again, so fantastic. I have something I want to say, but it's related to the artist whose work I want to share. So, so Well, real quick before you do that, Rob, so what, what was the story of the microphone difficulty? Oh, right. Okay, so this will be fun because... Emily, you and I have only just sort of texted about what happened. I went to drop off the microphone that we have for guests. It's a USB mic at Emily's place. Got the address. I was like, oh, I'm going to bike. This will be a really nice ride. It was nice to cool out. So I'm biking, biking, biking. And I get there. And Emily, I had noticed that you have a address with a fraction in it, you know, <laughs> which is, is which is cool. And what's funny is, is I, I got to the location and I was like, oh, this it sort of fits the general description you gave me of what your place could look like and that you were like, oh, they, they all kind of look similar, fractional addresses. The, the like one quarter address was actually the street side one. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. And so I'm looking and I'm like, oh, I'll just, there's the one half street sign sort of planted in a garden, uh, strangely enough, like kind of in the front. And Emily, I know you had said like, I think you had said something about a chair being out front. And I was like, I don't, I see some chairs, but I don't know if they fit the description. But I was like, this feels, this feels good. And because, you know, it's a socially distanced lifestyle that we're living these days. I was like, I'm just going to drop, drop it behind this sign. And that way I, I had wiped it down. I brought some like little hand, like Terry wipes in a Ziploc bag. And so I wiped it down and I put it down and I'm like, okay, cool. But then like all of these motion activated lights started coming on. And I was like, oh, I should probably just bail because it's late and you you have a lot of neighbors who are close by. And I don't know. I was just like, okay, I'm going to head out. Wait, Rob, you were doing this in the middle of the night? It's like 9, 9.45 or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you were, and you were standing inside somebody's yard 
doing something behind something. Nine thirty ten. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> As a very large person, this this makes me so nervous because I've I've so freaked people out. Like, just I would never find myself in that position. You know. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So I just dropped it off, and then I was like, I'll text her because you know it seems seems like the right thing to do uh, in case it gets stolen or something. I think I said like, oh, I dropped it off, and you were like, that's not my address. <laughs> I live in El Monte, California, and this is kind of a, a semi-dense area. And it was one of these like neighborhoods that had like big yards that over the years have gotten filled in with like houses behind other houses, which is a very like, I don't know if that's a thing in other places in the country, but it's very like some places in LA, you have one house that's like the main house, and then they've built like three or four houses behind the house. And I live in one of these places. And for some reason, online services hate my fractional address. Like Amazon refuses to accept it. I had to actually call their customer service and have them manually override it. And sometimes people will try to send me things through Amazon and it doesn't work. And I wish I had remembered this before you try to drop the mic off because I've had friends come here who had never been here before. And it's weird because like once they get the address right, like they come here, Google figures it out. But the first time, every time it's the first time, it sends them to a, a like a place a mile away. It's It's the same street name. It's on the other side of the freeway and it's a mile away. So we had said like, oh, around nine o'clock and I was sitting here waiting and I I'm, I wanted to make it kind of obvious where I live because there's, I live in these cottages and there's, there's like six of them and they all look the same. They're painted the same color. They're the same shape. And it was like, well, which one is mine? The addresses are hard to see. So I was like, I'm going to put a lawn chair out on the front. I was just sitting here waiting and it was like, well, it's like almost 10 now. Like, where's Rob? So text you and I was like hey are you still coming and like instantly you text back and you were like just dropped it off and there's a picture of the camera sitting behind a, like this little address sign in a yard and I'm like that's not my yard <laughs> like I don't know where that is but it's not my yard and then you were like oh no and you turned right around but it was gone by the time you got back and I felt so bad oh no the mic got stolen yep. yeah no <laughs> yeah it's funny because i rolled up and i was like they stole my mic and i was like well i did leave it in their yard <laughs> did did you knock i did i did i was like i'm gonna knock because they probably are just like wtf you know it's kind of i mean it's weird to knock on someone's door these days in a way like it's like calling somebody it's a very aggressive move yeah so i was like well i'm just gonna hang out for a while and i knocked again and then i was like they are probably freaking out because like this person left a weird hunk of electronics in my yard and now they're knocking on my door um they didn't answer so i just biked home yeah yeah that's so great <laughs> you should you should bike back out there and leave a post-it on their door that's uh, that has the link to this episode you know i can do that it's only a mile from my house you you guys have to do that <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could have him on as a guest. I had put opposable thumb stickers in the in the box, Emily, for you. So at least they're gonna have. Like, I was like, maybe they'll look it up or something. Like, but I haven't heard from them. So, oh well. <laughs> yeah, it has given me a good reason, Taylor, to check the opposable thumbs email, which I don't do enough. So <laughs> that was good. I know. Well, I mean, it sounds like we could learn something from Emily because we're just we've been so slow to uh, professionalize our social media behaviors. We were telling people to write in and get a sticker on Twitter. That's true. That's and somebody true. did in 2017, and we didn't see it till 2019. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote her and said, oh, 
thanks so much. You posted a really cool project. How can we make it up to you? And she was very cool about the whole thing. I think she was a, a yoga instructor or something like that. You guys use your social media like I use my dating sites where I like I like log in and I'm like, oh, this dude messaged me in like August and I never messaged him back and his account is no longer active. That's a long game. That's yeah. like that's like industrial industry standard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that is the nerdy joke to top so far. Emily, I'm I'm so into your uh, Instagram. There's a thousand projects I want to check on. But Rob, I th- I thought you had the right idea. If, did you want to uh, introduce a topic and then we can um, uh, put Emily in the middle, as is our habit with guests? Totally. Yeah. Part of our new formatty thing is we thought we would sort of bring an idea and bring a person or bring a, a concept, share some things. This is actually, I guess, Emily, related to my impression of your incredible creative output and work ethic (laughs) from afar so please take this as a compliment but at the same time it's something that i feel like i have been wrestling a lot with over the past few years so my topic is about pushing through having that like comfortable framing enough to be like i'm just going to push through until i get to the happy place with this project and then just keep going it's something that i really like about your posts, Emily, and that it doesn't seem like you particularly care so much about everything being so tidy, which is a thing I really enjoy. Also, I don't, I'm not so into that. I also really like the idea is very clear in your work. Like it's very clear what you're trying to do. And then like, here it is. And and I'll give an example. You had made recently a really great little kind of film strip decoder. So it, it, if I correct me if I'm wrong, it it takes the kind of uh, signal that's striped down the side of film which is the audio part of the uh, film strip. And you, as if I understand it right, it's probably some sort of optical encoder or, so, or reader or something. And like you're able to decipher that film strip. And so it's a really great looking project. Like it's 3D printed and it's in this really nice vice and it looks really good and is really cool. But like the next day you were on to the next thing. And I just thought that was really amazing, like a bulldozer of ideas. And I was just curious about if that just comes to you or if it's a, or if it's a practice you have. You know, it is, I, I would like to say that it's, deliberate and that there's some intentionality to it but i think it's more of that i get bored easily and so the the way i end up working on projects is uh, let me partially backtrack that like there is some intentionality to this but not entirely when i was younger I, like i didn't have the patience a lot of times to see projects through i would work on them until i get frustrated or i get bored and then i would just put them away or I just abandon them completely. And I think something I've learned as I've gotten older is that a more like healthy and helpful and productive practice is instead of getting mad and then completely getting rid of the project I was working on, like when I get to a point where I feel like I'm stuck or I feel like I'm burnt out or I just feel like I've been doing this for too many days, I set it aside and I have so many like multiple streams of projects going on at the same time that if I get tired of the film decoder, then I can, I can jump over to the, to the mannequin arms project I'm working on. Or if I'm tired of the mannequin arms project, I'll just go to my garden and like take care of my vegetables for a few days, you know? So the project you mentioned, the optical film decoder, you're correct. There's, there's a little strip down the side of film and not all film has this like eight millimeter. I think, I think some varieties of eight millimeter have this, but it wasn't common, but 16 millimeter, a lot of it has this little optical strip that goes down one side. And you find this in, in the 35 millimeter film. That was the film they used for the movie studios for a while too, though they moved on to digital now. 
there's this little strip that runs down the side. And so if you imagine like a film strip with all its little like frames, there's this strip along the side that is not part of the frames. And it's literally the sound waves. So like as sound hits the camera, there's these various mechanisms they use. But essentially, there's a little mechanism that varies the amount of light hitting the film so that it is proportional to the sound that hits the film. So you end up with this little track that sort of like wiggles and squiggles down the film. So like a couple of years ago, a friend of mine from work gave me a 16 millimeter film projector and it's from like the 1930s and it was broken. And he was like, hey, you like to fix things. Maybe you'd like to fix this. And I was like, yeah, definitely. So I fixed it and I was very excited because I had an old film projector. And I went looking for film for it. And it turns out it's it's a lot harder to find 16 millimeter film than it is to find eight millimeter film. Like lots of people recorded home movies with eight millimeter film, but 16 millimeter is more of like an institutional thing. If you had been in, in grade school in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if you watched like educational films in school, then they were probably on 16, 16 millimeter film, right? So they weren't as common and they tend to be like, I don't want to say boring, but they're educational. And, and and if you like that stuff, it's cool. Like there's a lot of really cool, like industrial films where it's like, this is how we make zinc, you know, for 45 minutes explaining how we make zinc. But I went looking for film and I was having a hard time. And I went to the flea market in Pasadena, which is here in LA. And I found a roll of film and it was on isotopes. And I, I was very excited. I brought it home and it doesn't fit with my projector because it was a slightly different format of 16 millimeter film. So I was like, Ugh. so I just set it aside and I finally decided to get rid of my projector. I'm giving it to to a friend's son because he's in film school. But I still have this this spool of film. And I was like, what am I going to do with this? And I don't know I don't know where the idea came from. But I was like, you know, it would be cool to get the audio out of that. Because my projector didn't do audio, right? He get it to play the film, but it, it was an old projector from before they had audio. So it couldn't do audio. And I was like, I'm really curious what the audio on this sounds like. And it just started this path of like, me figuring this out and it's like well it's optical so you have to shine a light through the little track and you have to have a receiver on the other side and like there was a lot of iterations to get it to a point where you could hear something what was really cool was like every time I'd make an improvement to it like when I first I had a little sensor on one side and I had a, an LED on the other side and the first time I pulled the film through the thing I could hear there was some kind of sound and if I listened carefully you know, the, the human brain is very good at listening to human voices. Like if you ever go hiking or you're in the woods, you'll hear like a human voice from a long ways away because like our brain is just built to process that. And so even with low, very, very poor, like low fidelity audio, even if you have no idea what the person is saying, you can still identify that there is a voice there. And so like the first step was like, oh, I can hear that there's a voice in there somewhere. And then like I made an improvement and it was like, oh, I can hear that there's words. I can't understand most of them, but like I picked up two words out of this thing and it was like, all right, this is getting exciting. And then I made another improvement. And then it was like, it was, it was like kind of, you get the goosebumps because like I pull the film through and there's this like man's voice coming out of this little thing I built. And it's, it's this voice that probably no one has heard since like 1968 or something. Cause I don't know when this film was, but, um, it's an old film about isotopes and I can't imagine anyone wanted to watch an industrial film about like isotope production for very long after it was made, but it was very exciting. So I got it working and I'm not done with that project. You just haven't seen anything about it because there's been a lot of like 
planning to take it to the next step. So that's where I'm at with it now. Were you were you pulling it through by hand? I was pulling it through by hand. And it actually took a lot of practice because like, it's very easy to go at the wrong speed. And like, you, you have to go at the like the right speed and at a very steady pace. And like, even as steady as you think your hand is, like pulling on film, it's not. And so it's really easy to like distort the audio beyond any recognition. So what I'm doing now is actually building a frame. It's it's going to be like a thing I'm going to put on my wall so I can cut like a six foot strip of film and then tape it into a big loop, sort of like how audio artists used to do tape loops with cassette tapes. So it's going to be like that. And it's going to have a motor that's just going to drive the film through this thing. So you just go up and press a button and it'll play the audio. And when you let go, it'll stop playing the audio. So that's cool. Awesome. If you check out the image from the Wikipedia article about optical sound, it says that the sound on film is now often encoded a number of ways. Ooh. And they're actually encoding the Dolby as a digital bitmap pattern in between the sprocket holes. And you can see like the little Dolby logo in between every sprocket hole. Isn't that wild? Uh, so one of my Twitter followers who's been like keenly interested in this project told me that last year he started a project to decode those basically what I'm doing, but to decode those Dolby, those little Dolby squares. And he never quite got it working right. And I told him he needs to work on it again. But I can't imagine like the, the precision required and the resolution required to get that data out of that little square is incredible because you know what, this thing I built, the resolution has to be very tiny because once, once you look at the film, like the little squiggles of audio are really, really small. They're like hair's width, right? And so I built my thing with two little razor blades and I, I used a feeler gauge to put like 10 thousandths of an inch between them. It, it works, but for him to do what he's going to do, he has to be able to capture all these little like black and white dots in two dimensions. Like I only have to work in one dimension. He has to grab them like vertically and horizontally and like get them digitized. And I will be amazed if he gets it to work because that's incredible. Are either of you familiar with the uh, sci-fi novel A Canticle for Leibowitz? No, what is that? Oh, it's a it's a great book. I'm I'm forgetting the author's name, but the the conceit is that um in the future there's a nuclear war and then all of the people kind of rise up and destroy the intellectual class because they blame intellectuals for the conflict. Writing is thought of as taboo. Okay. So they have like Catholics in the year 3000 have mutated into this organization that are trying to preserve any scrap of writing they can find. And so this guy is a manuscript illuminator, and he's given a piece of a washing machine electrical diagram, and then he spends his entire life, like 60 years, filigreeing, you know, and copying over this uh, diagram. It's a it's a fantastic book. You shall check it out. That's cool. That's like a different take on the, oh gosh, what is it called? The There was a thing in Dune, the, gosh, I'm forgetting the name. It's the, the Butlerian Jihad. I don't know if you guys have read Dune or not, but... Reading it right now. Okay, so... I, I have never finished it, but one of the parts of the setting in Dune is that at some point in our distant future, something bad happened with computers and people hated computers, so they destroyed all the computers. And there's like an almost religious dictate that thinking machines, like no machine shall be made that like thinks like a human. And so they have had to develop alternatives to doing like number processing and stuff. And they use humans as like organic computers and they have that stuff, the spice, which is like what the whole book circles around, is this naturally occurring material that's very rare. It enhances their brain ability so that they can do math 
in a way to like do interstellar travel because like computers are taboo. And that, that book you just mentioned, that's a really like a different take on it. And I really like that. I'm going to have to read that. Oh, yeah. I, I, I feel like the, the two of them belong together for sure. Walter Miller Jr. is the Canticle for Leibowitz author. I couldn't think of it either, Taylor. So I looked it up. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I think my sister or something was reading it when I was a kid. And I was always so intrigued by the title. I was like, what is a canticle? I still don't know. But <laughs> I like the I like the idea. Rob, we uh we're doing such a good job just talking off the cuff. Where are we in our structure right now? Oh, we we've completely walked walked away from our structure, which is good. Taylor, you were going to talk about a thing that you like in a human you're interested in. The thing that I like is something that I'm working on which has kind of overtaken my interest in other humans this particular episode. I'm uploading a couple of images if y'all want to check them out to the chat on Skype. So I'll just pause for a second if you want to grab the little zip file and open sure. it up. Oh, cool. Okay, I've got the zip file open. Yeah, check it out. So just to walk you all through it. So once upon a time for an opposable thumbs challenge, I'd made this little project where I took images of a corpse that had been frozen solid and sliced into very thin pieces. Mm. And so there were all those pictures of the slices laid out on a blanket or something. And then I was playing those slices as a slideshow on a TV that was moving on a track and taking a long exposure photograph so that at the end, the uh, sort of 3D model would be rebuilt in space through the, the medium of the photograph. So it worked out pretty well, but I was also working super huge, and I was doing a lot of kludging to get things working, so grabbing these you know, GitHub repos I didn't really understand, working in C, which I wasn't very good at, and so on. So I'm rebuilding the thing smaller, and now it's going to be a lot cooler. It's all based on the open builds system. Emily, have you worked with that material before, open builds? I have not. What is that? So check it out if you get a chance. I'll have to see if it's openbuilds.net or something like that. It's built around a couple of custom aluminum extrusion profiles. Okay. Um, so if you've worked with 8020 or anything in that territory, it's like 8020, but the openings have a 45 degree bevel on them, which means that a little bearing can sit in there and, and run up and down the rail. Unfortunately, I don't have a great picture of the bearing, but basically you can just buy their aluminum extrusion and plates and bearings and all that to make computer-controlled motion systems. Very cool. So this was a bunch of new stuff for me, but I've got this Raspberry Pi that's connected to the back of a Raspberry Pi 7-inch touchscreen. And then there's a, um, a, what is it in the Pi? Is it a hat, I guess? So the hat has a, oh, I should have looked this up. What is it? TT... 2258 or something like that. I, I, I'll have to put these in the show notes. But I'm working with a new stepper driver. And the stepper drivers are really great at getting very small, even with passive cooling now. So there's a stepper driver. There's a level shifter because the Pi works on 3.3 volts. And then I'm also using Hall effect sensors as the, um, the homing stops. So instead of mechanical switches, the thing just runs out to the end until it hits the Hall effect and then comes forward at a very specific rate while showing uh, a slideshow, which I'm going to capture in a long exposure photograph. Anyway, it's it's one of these ideas that, like, there's so many components to it, and when I talk about it in a fine arts setting, I have to leave all that stuff at home because nobody cares at all. Mm -hmm. And so you're just like, well, here's the image, and then that's it. But then in this particular context, I could just kind of let all my nerd stuff, you know, barf out on the table. But maybe this kind of speaks to Emily's thing before about, like, Yes, you know, I refer to myself as an artist in certain contexts. I mean, I'm an art professor 
because that's my job. But I do think I sit there uneasily because there's lots of stuff I like to do and think about that that don't fall into those categories. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, like, because this is something I struggle with, when to call yourself an artist, because some people unabashedly call themselves artists. And I, I never know. And this could just be like imposter syndrome, or it could just could be that, like, I don't conceptually think about my stuff as art, but I don't know how to, like, say I'm an artist. You know, I, I tinker and I do projects and people call my stuff art, but I don't know how to say I am an artist. Like, it doesn't it doesn't ring true to me. And I wonder if you guys think about that for yourselves. Like, how do you decide I'm I'm working on a, a project versus like I'm making art? I have a very fraught relationship with my identity as an artist person. I have a I Emily, you may feel similarly. I feel like every time I say I'm an artist, it's like I feel like I'm telling people like I'm a rock and roller or something like like it just feels so ridiculous. Like, like, like. Where if I even, like, even if I said, like, I'm a mountaineer, which is a total lie, I would feel better about it because I'm like, oh, that's, that's a thing. Like, oh, you know, a mountaineer. <laughs> but, like, an artist just feels ridiculous. But if you were actually a mountaineer, you'd probably feel self-conscious about it, don't you think? Probably, yeah. Struggle with it because I also feel like in past eight or ten years of my life has been, like, way outside the, like, gallery scene situation. I'm totally fine with that, but it makes me feel... Like when I say the word artist, I feel like, oh, but I'm not doing the the work of art, which is like the grind of getting shows or doing whatever. Yeah, I don't know. That's not a great answer. But I think, I mean, part of it too, I think, is if you don't feel self-conscious about it, you're probably also making a mistake. <laughs> so, so, so if you just like let it roll off your tongue super easily, that also is a little bit dubious, I think, in my opinion. So Taylor, what do you think? Uh, so there, there's a, a buddy of mine who I think Rob knows too, Duncan McKenzie, who was part of the Bad at Sports podcast. So they, they did this whole thing. I think, man, they've had like a thousand episodes or something crazy. Mm -hmm. They just interviewed all these different people from the sort of blue chip and sort of capital A art community. And the thing Duncan always tells me again and again, he's like, well, the one thing I learned is that they're all independently wealthy. <laughs> so, you know, like almost to a person, he really tended to feel like, a lot of that just came from silver spoons and people that had the um, the bandwidth to think about that stuff because they didn't have other problems intruding. So he's also the chair of my department at Columbia College in Chicago. And I was just talking to them the other day because so all of my students who work with me doing 3D modeling and 3D scanning invariably want to make like mutant dicks. <laughs> and so, so there's this like everybody's really interested in genitals and doing scans and mashups and all that stuff and i was saying you know well why don't we like why don't we do a um like an alt sex community class or like a sex toy class or you know or a cosplay class or whatever because in chicago you've got c2e2 and you've got the international leather museum and the international man of leather conference happens in chicago and so all these things kind of come together but they do definitely fall outside of the art community in a way. So who is the artist? I always pick on this person. I have to apologize for that. But she did the, the piece Shaking Hands with Sanitation, where she went around and shook every garbage person's hand in New York. And I feel like pieces like that, like that's great that the underlying idea of the art is to appreciate somebody that's normally not elevated in the culture. But ultimately, you know, she got the grant money. And then she puts her name on the project and it's sort of, 
I don't know that it has a really significant impact on any of the individuals. And so I feel like in a lot of ways, the art community, like I'm, I'm totally fed up with the idea that there is one art community and I think it's kind of it's kind of past its prime. It's kind of in the rearview mirror to me. And that might be coming from somebody who's aggravated that I couldn't be a part of it. I, and I don't think it's sour grapes, but I, I totally relate to what both of you were saying. We really want to do this thing, and then we find our people, like the you know three of us right here. And I'd much rather talk to this group than try to force some kind of external body to recognize what I'm doing is interesting, you know? For sure. And, you know, the the great thing, like coming back to social media briefly, the great thing about social media is that it's allowed me to find, like you said, my people. So there are I, I've made some good friends online, and I'm sure that in like different times we would have all been living in like the art, the artist neighborhood in some city together. Like but we're we're geographically distributed now, like we're dispersed. But there are these people who I find like what they do just speaks to me. And some of them have gone to art school and some of them haven't, you know, some of them like their day job is like being a coder or something, something else tech related or like me, like neither. Um, but you know, like you, you start connecting with people whose work really sort of mirrors your own in a way or challenges your own. And then you just find their stuff really interesting I guess maybe maybe what you said is true that like the the quote unquote like art scene or the art community is is dying or is dead or is changing because I've never seen any of these people in my life like you know we don't we don't get to get together because they're like on the other side of the country but nonetheless like we are there for each other's art like we appreciate each other's art and like maybe the gallery now is just being online I don't know well and of course Rub you know Rub was the one who initially made me aware of your work. And then that's an entirely digital connection, but then you live close enough together that he could bike the mic off and drop it at the wrong house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. Which is actually, to to your point, Emily, like super rare. It's kind of wild because there are millions and millions of people here. And like, I don't know anyone from here. Like, I mean, that's not to say I don't have any friends, but like most people that I'm like friends with are elsewhere now. You know, they live in Vegas or they live in Portland or they live in upstate New York, but they're not here. One time in my life, I went to this warehouse art party back in the before times. And when I got home, there was a DM from someone on Twitter. And it was like one of my Twitter friends. And he was like, hey, were you at a warehouse art party tonight? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I was there. But like, I don't want to say anything because I felt like that would be weird. One time in my life ever have I ran into someone from like this digital space in my real life. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I mean, because we do live somewhat close together. There's actually this never happens in Los Angeles, but it's like conceivable that we could like cross one another on the sidewalk, you know, which would be like an incredibly rare and awesome occurrence. But um, it's just funny that yeah, that those odds are still feel incredibly low, even though we um ostensibly have, I think, even the same employer. <laughs> so Emily, do you have any one's work or any person that you would like to share with us or anything like that? It's fine if you don't, but if you do, that's cool too. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Sarah Petkus or not. Sarah and last name is P-E-T-K-U-S. Um, she lives in Vegas and she does, I, I don't know how to describe her work. It, like it's some sort of like a post-human like 
human blended with technology thing. I don't want to define her work, but she has done some very cool projects. And she came to my attention first when she was working on this project that she called Shebon. It's like she and then space B-O-N. And she was building this kind of like, I don't know how do you describe it other than it's sort of like a, like an Iron Man suit, but for sex, it was like all these human machine interface bits that she could attach to herself, like attachments that would read her body temperature or read her skin conductivity or her heartbeat and then translate them either into like visual cues so people around her could see her level of arousal or things that would like provide feedback so that it would say like, hey, you're getting aroused and I'm going to give you positive feedback to further arouse you. So she had sort of like offloaded her sexual arousal systems into this thing she could wear that consisted of all these parts, like a backpack and like sort of a cod piece and this bra with like these nipple stimulators and this incredible necklace that was like a, it it, it was like a robot thing with these like octopus suction cups that would give her hickeys. It was fantastic. That was the first time I saw her work. And I was, I was amazed because like, it was completely like putting herself out there being in a state of arousal in front of people and making it obvious. And that's like a very vulnerable place to put yourself. And I, I just had my mind blown because she does such fantastic work. She has such a good sense of aesthetics with what she puts together. And she manages to capture like this very human side of just being a person But also she has an incredible ability to build like electronics and circuitry and stuff. So she does that. And then her other big project is this little robot child that she has. And it doesn't, when you say robot child, you think of like a creepy little doll, but it it does not look like a person. It's like an anthropomorphized face probe and it's called Noodle. And it's this little robot that it has eyes and it has a brain and it's, it's supposed to walk around. And I, I think she has developed different feet for it and the feet as it walks around can taste things and sense things. And like, if it steps on something, it finds interesting and it can like suck a piece up and store it inside of it, which is cool. But then the thing that really like makes this fun is that she treats it like her child. So she makes clothes for it. She makes costumes for it. Like she makes a Halloween costume for it. Like when it's Christmas time or it's like winter, like her last thing was like, oh, it's getting cold. And she was really into cows this year. And she made an outfit for it to make it look like a cow's udder. So it could like dress up in a costume. And like, I just love Sarah's work. And Sarah is such a fantastic person on top of that. Like she is endlessly inspirational to me. That's really great. I had only seen the photo of the neck piece of the neck sucker piece. And I was just like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. (laughs) But I had no idea. It was part of this whole larger like ecosystem of ideas and technologies. And now I really want to sort of put all the pieces together. So thanks. That's really great. Yeah. Noodle Feet makes the rounds on Reddit frequently. Yes. So I think I had encountered her work in that way. Thanks for turning us on to uh, Sarah. Yeah, really great. Sure. Taylor, I do have one question for you about your piece. The last photo you shared with us, Taylor, is it's a tiny 3D printed part. And as I understand it, is used to sort of connect the wiring that you have onto your rail. And I was wondering if you could describe that little piece and why you took a picture of it to include it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was working with Hall Effect sensors for the first time, which are great. So you get, is it neodym? Well, so is it neodymium? Is that how you say it? Uh, The magnets. Yes, I think that's right. Or at least close. Is that what that is there? Yeah, you get what I'm saying. So you can get a pack of those from Amazon real cheap. So there's a, a, a 3D print that encapsulates a magnet. 
And then there's a Hall effect sensor that's listening for the magnetic field. So this way you don't have to make physical contact for the limit switches when the motor is pushing out to the, you know, the, the hard limits of the machine. And the Hall effect sensor is really teeny, so I wanted to sort of mount it in a way that was repeatable so that it wasn't just flopping around on the end. And so I got into press fit design. There was a cool article on Magazine or something about how if you want to press fit into a hole, instead of trying to print over and over again until you get a cylinder that press fits just right, you just print a, an extruded octagon. And then when you do that, it just has these little sort of points right around its perimeter that are known in industry, I guess, as crush ribs. So when you jam it down into the hole, it changes shape slightly and then kind of press fits into place. And you're more likely to get it on the first time as opposed to, you know, printing a thousand variants before you get the right one based on the humidity of the day or whatever. Yes. Got it. I've tried that before. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up because as I've been working on this optical film decoder thing, I've had to make a bunch of press fit parts and literally like three days ago, I was printing like 10 versions of this thing to make a part fit onto a cylinder. And uh, now I've learned something. So I'll just use octagons next time. Yeah, try it out. In, in my experience, you start by sizing the octagon just ever so slightly larger than the hole. It just depends on your printer or maybe you start like right on the bunny or something, but it seems to work pretty well. I, I, I love this little part. I'm looking at this thing and I, I've talked about this on Twitter for a lot of people, 3D printing is like an is an art form, and they they spend their time developing these these very like beautiful prints that are very complex to design and to and to actually bring to like a, a real world piece that's in front of them. And they spend a lot of time getting their layers perfect. But like all I print is brackets. Like I print brackets and brackets in like holders and like <laughs> spacers. I print just all manner of brackets and spacers for my projects. And I love this little thing because it's so specific to holding this hall effect sensor and it has two little zip ties and it has it looks like two little like four little slots for the zip ties to go through and it's just so so perfectly made for what it is it really is yeah yeah and it's like a part you'd never find on mcmaster rob and i have been toying with the idea of trying to put a show together that's just all based on jigs and like uh, interstitial designs that aren't the final thing but you know are something that you really slave over and then just hide away from the audience you know yeah it would be great because I think if it was a series of lectures, like people would be so effusive about they're like, I made this thing because like, <laughs> it feels so good. Yeah. To make a thing that like exists in your head, but like you could never find by crawling McMaster or Amazon or something. You're like, I, I, I've got it. I've got the thing. That's a great coffee table book. I would buy that for my dad for sure. Yeah, it would be good. Let's do it. We'd like to send you an opposable thumb sticker. If you share a podcast episode on social media, rate us on iTunes, send smoke signals or other cool thing to let people know about the podcast. We might mail you a sticker, but it might take us two years to get it to you. Just contact us on Instagram at opposable underscore podcast or at our email address, which is opposable podcast at gmail.com. We'd like to give a shout out to Wesley Ellis, Charlene McBride, Adam Mayer, Deb Chatra, Blondie Hacks, Nick Kantar, Walter Kutundu and David Bellhorn. They're our top Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them in our league of Patreon supporter badasses, please go to patreon.com slash opposable thumbs to sponsor us. Anything you can donate really helps keep the podcast going. Our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter, or religion, or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. You can check out our full code of conduct over at our site. Emily, do you have any locations for our listeners to go to 
to learn more about your work and see images of all the cool things that you make? Sure. I don't have a website, not yet. I, I, I've got that in the planning stages. But if you want to keep up with just my daily nonsense, I'm on Twitter like all day, every day. For people that are interested in more of a step-by-step -step process of my projects, I post photos like every time I'm doing anything with any of my projects. So you really get a full view of like the project from, from beginning to end. And you can find me on Twitter at MLE. It's the letters MLE, like M like Mary, L like Larry, E like Everest, MLE underscore online. And I'm on Instagram, which is more of finished projects and then just random photos at MLE underscore makes. Oh, and then I have a YouTube that I sporadically use that's called Emily's Electric Oddities. Which is, I think, how I learned about your work somehow. Oh, cool. And it's because I was so mad at YouTube. I like to think of the podcast as a place for like weirdos to live. People who make cool stuff and electronic stuff and difficult work, but like challenging work, important work, but also weird work. And I get mad because my YouTube feed is often just so horrible that I often just like hammer in ridiculous phrases in order to find other people. And I think that's how... I found a video that you had made last Halloween, maybe, in there somewhere. Okay. And I was like, who's this person? This this person, <laughs> this is one of my people. And so I was just like, subscribe. <laughs> and that was and that's how I think I think I crossed your path, which is ironically through YouTube, which is not a place where a lot of people like us have a strong, I'd say, presence or sort of where we live. We tend to be other places. It's funny because I'm like, I learned about this cool person's work today on YouTube, which is not a thing most people say very much. No, that never happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, Taylor, do you have any social media stuff or anything you want to share with people? Oh, man, I've just, I've really had my head down working on this thing. So mostly it's just openbuilds.com is the website I was referring to before that I recommend everyone check out. Uh, next time I'll be back with some more... Uh, folks to check out out there in the in the wilderness that's awesome cool i'm gonna say my website because i never do and i actually just updated it the other day that and it has a bunch more stuff on it now which is robray.net r-o-b-r-a-y dot n-e-t what's funny is i feel like most of my work is borderline crappy and so it looks like a work in progress even though i consider it done so you can just take it as that emily thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast yeah for sure and i'm realizing all these things that we didn't get to talk about like i wanted to talk to you about the dot matrix printer cartridge thing and there was some other stuff in there too so maybe maybe we'll save that for part two thank you guys for having me this was really fun i'd love to come on again <laughs>